This is Radio Parallax, a slightly different perspective from a slightly different view, with topics that include matters in science, technology, history, politics, current events, and whatever we damn well please. And now the host of Radio Parallax, Douglas Everett. Welcome to the program, and thanks to all of you who sent me birthday wishes. And amazingly enough, all of you who guessed my birthday were correct. I am, in fact, 39. That's a birthday I've been celebrating for some time and plan to continue to do so in future years. And I recommend, dear listener, that if necessary, you do the same. Let us begin today's program with On This Date in History. Date in question being July 19th. It was on July 19th in the year 1799, during Napoleon Bonaparte's Egyptian campaign, that a soldier discovered a black basalt slab inscribed with ancient writing near Rosetta, a town north of Alexandria. The stone contained passages written in Greek, Egyptian hieroglyphics, and Egyptian demotic. The Greek passage noted that the three scripts were all of identical meaning. Thus, the Rosetta stone held the key to solving the riddle of hieroglyphics. If you're so inclined, you can see the Rosetta Stone in the British Museum. How the British stole it from Napoleon, I'm not sure. But I got a feeling Waterloo had something to do with it. And in defense of the British, I would say they're taking excellent care of it. And it was on July 19th in 1848 in Seneca Falls, New York, that the first Women's Rights Convention was held in the United States. Almost 200 women were in attendance. It was originated by Lucretia Mott and Elizabeth Cady Stanton, who met at the 1940 World Anti-Slavery Convention in London. As women, they were barred from the convention floor. This was the impetus for their founding of the movement. And sadly, it was on July 19th in 1935 that the first American automatic parking meter, the Park-O-Meter, was invented by Carlton McGee and installed in Oklahoma City, Oklahoma, by the Dual Parking Meter Company. 24 spaces were painted on the pavement, and a parking meter that accepted nickels was planted on the concrete at the head of each space. And no radio parallax is unable to confirm whether or not Carlton McGee is now burning in hell. Percy has inspired uh, local politicos in the metropolitan area of Sacramento to parking meter everything, and then send out meter maids and meter stooges driving around their little vehicles, ticketing everything. And then they wonder why they lose commerce to the suburbs. Of course, they're apparently making so much money from parking that this this featured prominently in the plan to build a giant arena to keep the Sacramento Kings local. Well, who knows? Maybe if some of our local politicals will someday join Carlton McGee, where, wherever he may be. And finally, on July 19th in 1949, a young singer named Harry Belafonte began recording for Capitol Records. Capitol didn't believe that Belafonte was commercial enough, but he eventually signed with RCA Victor and had a rather highly productive career. Mr. McMillan? Work all night on a drink of rum. Stack banana till the morning come. Come, Mr. Tallyman, tally me banana. You know, we're grateful for that item for allowing us to insert the Banana Boat song into Radio Parallax. 
In fact, we hate to give it up. Our quote of the day, and we may have more to say about that later today and in future shows, comes from Seneca, who said, No man is crushed by misfortune unless he has been first deceived by prosperity. Our quote of the day comes from employment guru Robert Hall, who was quoted in Forbes.com saying, Talent does you no good unless it's recognized by someone else. And we have a trio of jokes from uh, the late night TV hosts. First of all, from David Letterman who said recently, Mitt Romney reminds me of the guy in high school who only has friends because his parents have a swimming pool. And we have Conan O'Brien's entry. A man is filing a lawsuit against Kim Kardashian and Kanye West, claiming they have ties to Al-Qaeda. When Al-Qaeda heard about this, they said, please do not lump us in with those maniacs. And finally, we have a recent entry from Jimmy Fallon, who said, Hugh Hefner is back together with his fiancée, Crystal Harris, one year after she called off their wedding. It's like they say, if you love something, let it go. And if it comes back to you, it probably ran out of money and remembered you were a billionaire. I want money. Our stat of the day is 31, which features in two items. First, that the House Republicans tried to repeal President Obama's signature health care law for the 31st time in 18 months last week, according to The Week magazine. And I think there may be an update on that from Will Durst. And also, a new study by the World Health Organization found that 31% of Americans suffer from an anxiety disorder in the course of their lifetimes because of work and financial worries and pressure to succeed. This is five times the anxiety rate among people in third world nations, such as Nigeria. And I think at this point we will jump into the good, the bad, and the ugly. According to The Week magazine, it was a good week this week for flying pigs after the federal government proposed new guidelines that would allow disabled people to board airplanes with unusual, quote, service animals, unquote, to provide comfort, including pigs, miniature horses, and monkeys. Reputedly, other passengers may not object. Well, I gotta tell you, if someone sits down next to me with a lively monkey, well, there's just, there's just gonna be problems. And, and I say that as someone who's very fond of primates. And I must say that does remind us of one of the great quotes from the immortal Chuck Yeager, who supposedly, after being informed that NASA, rather than launch a uh, craft into space piloted by a, a real pilot, was instead going to bolt a chimpanzee inside a space capsule and toss that around the world. Said Yeager, and I think I'm paraphrasing slightly, Yeah, I'd hate to, hate to have to sweep the monkey crap out of the capsule before I got in. And you know, miniature horses? Miniature horses. I mean, I know back in the fossil record, Eohippus was smaller than a, than, a, than a collie, but miniature horses. We'll have to see where that story goes. At any rate, we will balance off our good week for it with a bad week for wooing female voters after a German mayor 
ordered parking spaces to be labeled with male and female symbols with tighter, more challenging spaces designed for men. Said Mayor Gallus Strobel, men are, as a rule, a little better at such challenges. Finally, it was an ugly week last week for the war on drugs, with the news, according to the New York Times, that despite spending $25 billion on this war, the price of one gram of cocaine has actually dropped 16% since 2001. All right, now we do like to quote from the Week magazine's Only in America file, but we tend to keep relabeling it as news from America's disgrace of a legal system. And I guess, dear listener, You can choose the label you prefer, but here are the two items. First off, the notorious heart attack grill in Las Vegas has lost a legal battle to stop a New York delicatessen selling its own, quote, triple bypass sandwich, unquote. Yes, a federal judge ruled that the Second Avenue Deli's $35 pile of pastrami between potato latkes clearly qualified for the description and did not infringe on the HAG's trademark for bypass burgers. Said deli owner Jeremy Liebelwall, we feel that we've been vindicated. Yes, and we wonder why our court system is so plugged up. Our second item is that according to the Wall Street Journal, the nation's cell phone carriers handled 1.3 million requests by law enforcement agencies last year to snoop on users' calls, text messages, and location. The number of such requests is rising about 15% per year. And finally, we have a third item, which I think sort of qualifies, um, which is as follows. A Florida lifeguard has been fired for rescuing a man who was drowning in the wrong part of the ocean. (laughs) Thomas Lopez, age 21, admits he left his designated patrol area to save a drowning swimmer, which his employer said was a violation of its policies. Said Lopez, someone needed my help. I wasn't going to say no. Carson, I believe under threat of lawsuit, they reinstated him. Not sure on that, though. All right, as I go to our pile of uh, clippings left over from the past few weeks, what do I run into? A couple more legal items. A couple weeks back, the attorney for Scott Peterson, remember him, convicted in 2004 of killing his pregnant wife and dumping the body in San Francisco Bay? Well, a couple weeks back, Peterson's attorney formally appealed his death sentence on the basis of the fact that pre-trial publicity and judicial errors helped convict him. Actually, I think what really helped convict him was the evidence. Yes, Berkeley attorney Cliff Gardner said in a 470-page appeal that even though the 2004 trial was moved from Modesto to Redwood City, quote, only 90 miles away, unquote, jurors were unduly swayed by massive publicity. You know, in a modern era of electronic communication, you can have pretrial publicity and be aware of a case that takes place in Borneo. Here's the part I like the most about this article by Garth Stapley, reprinted from the Modesto Bee, that although it's been several years since Peterson was convicted, this particular appeal is considered fast relative to other California death penalty cases, which, of course, are automatically appealed and typically languish for more than a decade. By way of reminder, in this case, Lacey Peterson was eight months pregnant when she disappeared Christmas Eve 
from Rodesta home when her husband took, <laughs> took a sudden fancy to fishing off the Berkeley Marina. Of course, when he was last later, what he was fishing for, he, he was stuck for an answer. We're going to see if we can bring one of our legal eagles on this program in the future to discuss this nonsense about pre-trial publicity, which you know, even Mark Twain was, was making fun of a century ago. Twain raised the issue long ago that apparently only people who are troglodytes living in caves who had no contact with others and therefore never heard of a case would be qualified to sit on an American jury, which I guess is pretty much where we stand a century later. I don't know. We'll talk about this. And yet another example of how uh, justice delayed is justice denied. We have the matter of the people down in Guantanamo Bay, Cuba. Now, we've got people down there, including Khalid Sheikh Mohammed, uh, supposedly the man who was the mastermind between the 9-11 attacks, and yet we, we can't seem to put this guy on trial 11 years later. Note of The Economist magazine, many people hope that the present case would be this generation's version of the Nuremberg trials, which were designed to punish Nazis to remind the world of their atrocities, and to set a standard for fairness. That does not look likely. For a start, the Nuremberg trials took place immediately after the end of the war, while the 9-11 trial will not begin for at least another year, by which time Khalid Sheikh Mohammed will have been in custody for a decade. Victor Hansen, a retired Navy prosecutor who has tried cases in Guantanamo, fears that the proceedings are tainted before they have even properly begun. And so it goes, the wheels of justice turning ever so slowly in American courts. Now, if you talk to people from Europe, and we certainly have on this program, about what they think of the idea of convening juries to try and uh, decide on people's uh, guilt, rather than using trained professionals like judges, which they seem to manage to do in most other, every other country except those uh, founded by the British, well, uh, my impression is they tend to think of it as lunacy. And you know what, if any of you have had some crazy experiences on juries or the jury selection process, which we all seem to get to called to do every so often, in spite of the fact that we may own businesses and have jobs for which we cannot be substituted, they still try and make us come on down and sit on juries for God knows how long. And, and what do we get paid? $5 a day, I believe, is what we get paid, which I suppose would be a reasonable wage in 1902. Or, or, of course, perhaps a Vietnamese sweatshop. But anyway, uh, let's talk about another pet peeve. I guess I'm just in that kind of mood, having just had a birthday. Let's talk about America's disgrace of a system of teaching mathematics. Now, I would note that in 10 years of doing this program, I think nothing that I've ever said has, has made more people mad, to judge by your response, than my suggestion some years back that we should discontinue the formal teaching of mathematics in schools if we can't do a better job than we do. Most people I know cannot do fractions and ratios, and yet we try and give people algebra and analytic geometry, which most people also can't do. At any rate, many of you disagree with that particular viewpoint of mine, but listen to the following. A recent study published in the Journal of Marketing shows how hopeless people are at math. I mean... Basic math. Really basic math. A team of researchers led by Ashke Rao at the University of Minnesota's Carlson School of Management looked at consumers' attitudes to discounting. Shoppers, they found, much prefer getting something extra free to getting something cheaper. The reason is most people are no damn good at fractions. Consumers often struggle to realize, for example, that a 50% increase in 
quantity is the same as a 33% discount in price. They overwhelmingly assume that the former is a better value. An experiment. The researchers sold 73% more hand lotion when it was offered in a bonus pack than when when it carried an equivalent discount. In one experiment, Mr. Rao offered two deals to his undergraduates. This is on loose coffee beans. They could get 33% extra free or a 33% price reduction. Now, if you do the math, the discount is by far the better proposition. But these supposedly clever students viewed them as equivalent. Yes, this is here in America where we now want to teach algebra to junior high students. Students who think that 33% extra material is the same as 33% off the price. Holy mackerel. People are even more befuddled by double discounting. They are more likely to see a bargain, for example, if something's been reduced by 20% and then by an additional 25% versus one that's been subject to an, to an one-time 40% reduction. And of course, if you get your calculators out, you'll find that they are the same. Of course, what I find frightening is that people pretty much have to get their calculators out to make such a determination. At any rate, I guess uh, part of this may be attributable to human nature. I mean, you know, don't we get tired of the price being $99.99 instead of $100, but we fall for it every time? I don't know. Although some of it may be due to our hard wiring and how we estimate numbers, I think a lot of this has to do with really crappy education. And that's my story, and I'm sticking to it. Of course, when I make a statement like that, I would hasten to add that that opinion, like all those heard on this program, do not necessarily represent those of KDVS, our sponsors, or the University of California, all of whom have noted in the past that this program is 50% more accurate than competing programs. I just would note, in closing, as Mr. McMillan has long pointed out, that there are three types of people in the world, those who can do math and those who can't. And let's take a moment to hear from our good pal, Will Durst, whom we've not heard from in a while, owing to his summer vacation. Hey guys, Will Durst here to thank the GOP for providing America with our replacement fireworks. Cities all over the country were forced to cancel Fourth of July festivities this year due to lack of money, fear of fire, and incompetent computers. But the Republican House made up for it by setting off enough indoor fireworks to make the San Diego Big Bay bust look like a fluttering votive candle. For the 33rd time, all house business was forced to come to a grinding halt so they could vote on repealing Obamacare. Again, 33 times. Even though they know there's a better chance of flamingos flying out of their butts than the Senate ever signing on or getting past a presidential veto. As far as political theater goes, it was a sad summer stock production with tired choreography and a script duller than Shakespeare in modern dress performed by third graders in Mandarin. No wonder they keep trying to cut funding for the arts. They're afraid of the competition. Cumulatively, this grandstanding has taken up two entire weeks of congressional business at an estimated cost of $24 million a week to keep the gears moving. $50 million to reinforce one exhausted propaganda point. Perfectly good money that could have been spent on more tax cuts for the rich. Do you know how many car elevators $50 million would buy? They say they want to replace Obamacare, but ask for specifics and they get as vague as Donald Trump talking about the importance of ethics while closing the deal. 
First, there was Romney care, and now we got Obamacare. But if the conservatives get their way, we're going to end up with we don't care. Less care for you. Couldn't care less. We just might have to call these fiscally responsible charlatans the Care Less Party. For Radio Parallax, I'm Will Durst. Good to have Will back, and I, I don't know if it, maybe some of you didn't hear about this, but apparently down in San Diego on 4th of July, a very expensive fireworks show went awry after sponsors contributed about $380,000 to host the show, of which the Port of San Diego contributed 145000 Well, instead of having a 20-minute spectacular, the whole thing was over in 20 seconds. I would note that Mr. McMillan, who does not like fireworks shows, thinks this was the best one he ever saw, at least on video. It's the part I like the best. Uh, reputedly, the show's producer blamed a, quote, technical glitch, unquote, saying that an error in its computer system caused tens of thousands of fireworks on four barges to go off simultaneously with a single command. Reportedly, the company that put on the show said they felt terrible about that, but reports noted that the mood was unforgiving among the many of hundreds of thousands of people who witnessed the explosions before they could get off their first ooh or ah. Yeah, the show that had been billed as The Big Bay Boom left people standing in quiet disbelief, wondering what the hell just happened. At any rate, I think we need to take a break. But before we do, and since we were talking about some of Mr. McMillan's prejudices, I think I would add one more to the list. That comes from Parade Magazine, which for some reason this correspondent cannot resist in the Sunday paper. Someone asked in one of the sections, is there any bizarre food that Andrew Zimmern won't eat? The answer was that the 50-year-old chef has circled the globe tasting strange delicacies from pigeon pie to barbecued armadillo on his Travel Channel show. But there is one food that he loathes. Walnuts. Said Mr. Zimmern, I can't stand them. They're gross. I think they taste like soap. They don't taste that good. Well, there you have it. So please, if you have, you have any inclination to send pastries to Radio Parallax, hold off on the baklava. And on that note, let's take a well-needed short break. You're listening to Radio Parallax. I'm Douglas Everett.